0: birds well oh, shit mm-hmm. welcome to extended clip episode 47 I'm one of your hosts Eddie averill
1: I'm Birdman
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> um I'm JT White
0: and today our double feature is The Birds Alfred Hitchcock 1963 and sully the clint eastwood film from 2016 um how you guys doing this week
2: i'm doing good you know i've been i've watched like a shit ton of movies so i kind of feel like uh roger ebert i've been at the movies lately (laughs) (laughs)
1: yeah i'm doing swell watching flicks hanging in there it's all i can do how about yourself
0: Oh, I feel like absolute fucking shit, to be honest, and, um, I'm in a lot of physical pain, and my voice is not gonna be as clear as usual today, um, just a forewarning, but mentally, mentally, I'm over the fucking moon, man, I watched some good movies today, I'm just sitting back, chilling, but yeah, um, for the, for the listeners at home, I am in the process of detoxifying my body from nicotine, and, uh... If you're a close listener of Mark Maron's podcast, you may have remembered this arc from his show. And what I'm trying to do is lift different narrative arcs from different podcasts in order to boost the success of our own show. So yeah, I figured if Mark Maron can quit smoking and it'll be like an inspirational thing, I can quit smoking and, you know, it'll be good for the pod. But unfortunately, it has made me crazy and... um. I, my throat hurts and I have all these like ulcers in my mouth. It's sick. It's like really uh, disgusting. But I'm here to play through the pain like Jordan's flu game.
2: Yeah, you got to embrace that pain. You got to get to the point where the pain is pleasure. You know what I mean? You got to be you wake up. You're like, I'm happy that I'm hurting. That's, you know, and I, and, <laughs> and I, I think that's a good idea to steal narrative arcs from other podcasts. And, and that's why I'm going to kill a high schooler. Uh, <laughs> so our podcast could pop up and get those yeah.
1: numbers. I'm just gonna take DMT.
2: Damn, JT Rogan?
0: That would be <laughs> Damn, JT's about to go on the real heroes journey. <laughs> Uh, So our first film is The Birds by Alfred Hitchcock. I have a particularly strange relationship to this film because I watched it in a film and literature class where we talked about the uh, short story for a little while and uh, the teacher just fucking blabbed on for so long that we could only watch the first 45 minutes of the movie in class. And then I didn't pick it up again until like three years later, like six months ago. I watched it and loved it, and uh, it was somehow even better today.
2: Yeah, you know, also, um, I kind of grew up near where the incident that this movie is based off of happened. Uh, I remember my grandma telling me that, you know, she had friends who saw this incident that happened in uh, Capitola, California, where all the birds gathered up. And um, yeah, so Hitchcock's, you know, I got Hitchcock's almost a, a local legend, in my book, even though he's from, like, <laughs> Britain or whatever. But he made a lot of movies in Northern California.
0: It's true. He definitely, yeah, I, I like this period in his career. I mean, obviously, everyone fucking likes the <laughs> 50s into the early 60s Hitchcock stuff that's, like, film school 101 bullshit. But, like, uh, I do really like the way he uses Northern California in some of those movies like this in Vertigo. Oh, yeah,
2: yeah. My, uh, my parents got married at the San Juan mission where the climax takes place. oh shit yeah yeah you know this shit runs this film shit runs (laughs) through my fucking blood man it's not a fucking
0: game to me (laughs) (laughs) jt you'd seen this one before too right
1: yeah um hitchcock was like the first director i ever got into um i remember in like seventh grade reading like a big fat hitchcock text um just pounded through all of his movies i think i've seen like The vast majority, I think, like, 37 now. um, But The Birds was always one that I wasn't as hot on. Like, I definitely liked it. Like, all of his stuff, I think, is, like, pretty good, usually. Um, But it didn't, like, I don't know, it didn't have that classic status until uh, watching it today really cemented that for me. Because I feel like there's a lot of, like, subtlety and tension that like to a twelve or thirteen year old like went over my head at the time.
0: Oh yeah, as a twelve or thirteen year old, yeah, there's like no way to really get deep into the psychological aspect of this film. Really, <laughs> I think you uh, kind of—it's kind of a requirement to go through puberty before understanding it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I also encountered this one at a young age as well. Uh, much like JT, I'm pretty sure Hitchcock was the first uh, director for me. And yeah, I always found this one to be kind of like the dullest of his works. And I never really revisited it until now, actually. I, I knew it wasn't as bad as I had remembered. But um, I mean, it's like, you know, in fact, big surprise, it's really good. But I mm-hmm. think it is one of his more abstract films. You know, I, I, it makes sense that I wasn't able to grasp it at, at that age.
0: Yeah, it. I think that the abstraction, uh, the obvious question of why the attack happens, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, is something that isn't really in the other Hitchcock thrillers, which operate on such a, like a perfect watch or whatever, you know, where Mm -hmm. everything is in its place, doing its function. uh, And this one feels a lot more open, a lot more ambiguous kind of an infinite amount of ways to read into this movie and at the same time it's still not too vague because the general the form of it as a suspense or a horror movie is enough to keep propelling it forward despite all of the questions that are raised as you're watching it
2: no yeah and I think that's why this kind of feels like a, a special Hitchcock to me because it's kind of breaking some of his narrative conventions that he likes to follow and kind of presenting a horror that's, you know, almost like there's obvious metaphors that can be drawn, but it's almost anti-metaphorical in a way where you can't give it a concrete meaning. And for some reason, you know, watching this movie, that felt more powerful to me than anything else, rather than like, oh, like this is, you know, the birds are a symbol for grief or whatever.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Uh, the Ari Aster remake, which will be <laughs> the birds, a film about grief. The violent attacks of the birds are obviously explosive outbursts of maternal superego, of the maternal figure preventing, trying to prevent sexual relationship. So the birds are raw, incestuous energy so like the ambiguity comes from this film being like so far away from reality you know like Mm -hmm. obviously there is some implausible stuff some thriller plot mechanic stuff that happens in every hitchcock movie that would never happen in real life but this one feels the most outlandish the most fantastical uh and i think that's why it has some detractors in terms of its script its narrative people just can't really buy into it but what I was thinking about actually was something that Emmett said on our podcast a couple months ago about Jacques Rivette being uh, his films being like reality in the pursuit of fantasy. And this feels like uh, it's kind of the inverse of that where there's not even a reality to start with. Uh, So the fantasy just has like unlimited options of how you want to tie it back to reality. And then also in Pervert's Guide uh, to the Cinema, the Slavo Zizek movie, he talks about how, like, uh, when, you know, the space that is known, the space that has existed before is disturbed, then reality disintegrates. And then even with that, it's like, there are so many different ways you can read into applying that film to the birds. Like, what is the disturbing force? Is it the birds or is it Melanie, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. And obviously it's just the, the collapse of any sort of reality when the birds strike is such like a powerful uh kind of gesture of uh cinema you know hitchcock said many times that this film is about complacency and it's that like fucked up uh complacency of these upper middle class people who live these extremely twisted lives that Hitchcock is very cynical about and how he presents them uh and just the slightest uh the slightest provocation just collapses all of the reality that those characters know
1: oh yeah in terms of like the bourgeois nature of most of the characters, like this is definitely like big Karen cinema. There are a lot of <laughs> <laughs> like uh, uh, like uppity white women in this uh, for sure, and I think it's interesting how it's like the in these like white like middle to upper middle class circles there's like all this underlying tension like simmering underneath that we see throughout most of the film before the bird attacks like even start to happen just begging for like something to burst open all this underlying tension
2: no i was gonna say and i feel like that tension is like represented when melanie is uh wandering around the house at night and just finds a random room that is swelling with birds. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh my god, that scene uh, toward the end when she's getting attacked by that pack of birds when she just wanders in there for no fucking reason at all. Uh and then you think to yourself, well there has to be a reason, and then you just drive yourself crazy. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and what the thing that you said about um it being kind of a fantasy from the jump, I was kind of uh, struck by how strange the beginning of this movie is, or like the terms that this movie sets. So like Melanie is like a, yeah. a rich prankster who like goes around like <laughs> being more, like wild or being wild in like other countries and like just acts on a whim to like prank this uh, guy that she's you know she's somewhat attracted to. It's a it's very strange and kind of like listless for like its first twenty to forty minutes.
0: Well, that first scene in The Bird Star is actually uh, what sparked the Revet thought, which led me to what Emmett said uh, mm-hmm. about fantasy and reality, because that scene is so strange where she, wh- what we find out is that she's a rich, bored girl who plays practical jokes to keep herself occupied, uh, which obviously is a critique of the, cl- uh, of the bourgeoisie class, but As we see her just like adapt to the environment of a bird store and pretending to be an employee just to fuck with this guy, it's like a weird acting exercise, like an improv exercise or something like that. And it's a weird metatextual thing because Hitchcock knows how much the audience knows about this bird store from the interaction that Melanie had with the clerk. And, you know, we're able to judge how she's able to, uh, or how good she is at being a swindler, a a prankster, a con artist, whatever. And I think like those little games that he encounters in the first half of the movie before the bird strikes is just like, so out of left field and such like psychological provocations it's you know it's more psychotic than psycho for sure no yeah and and the
2: and these games right are never resulted there's no clear winner you know and that kind of adds to i don't know kind of like this quality almost you know this apocalyptic quality at the end of the film of just kind of like these meaningless games that these people play to keep themselves occupied even the stuff that might matter right maybe even like the hint of incest is maybe just kind of the cause of them being like cooped up in their own little
1: circles
0: yeah this is my rules of the game <laughs> <laughs>
1: i i think in relation to what you guys are talking about with fantasy here i think there's like a very proto lynchian quality to that because it's like uh, like Lynch, the vast majority of this setting is like a very like quaint, like little folksy bullshit town and just sort of watching things explode and erupt in that way. And like the one thing that struck me in particular to direct comparison to The Return is um, when they're in the diner and the birds are attacking and the woman is like looking directly Like staring down the camera saying, why are they doing this? It reminded me of the, in the return, the woman just shrieking, laying on her horn saying, (laughs) why is this happening? And there's just that like paranoid quality to it that like, because it's something so fantastical and detached from reality, but like sort of parroting it in a way that it feels very like Hitchcock's most Lynch for sure.
0: Oh, yeah, I thought about David Lynch quite a few times in this, especially due to the dissolves that Hitchcock uses in this. I mean, obviously, he uses dissolves before uh, quite a bit over his career leading up to this, but these ones, the way that he's laying these uh, landscapes on top of each other or faces on top of landscapes definitely recalls some of Lynch's films, especially the one where it's the the really beautiful two shot of Melanie and Annie the school teacher looking up at a bunch of birds that are on uh, like the telephone pole as we get kind of our first ominous shot while we're in Bodega Bay and shows their reaction to those birds just looking up in slight fear but mainly curiosity and then it crossfades into just this huge dark blue sky over this huge wide shot of the house uh and it's like one of the most beautiful images in the film and also directly reminded me of both the straight story and mulholland drive so The narrative of the film, uh, as we said, it starts off with Melanie Daniels, played by Tippi Hedren, uh, as a prankster in a bird store flirting with a guy who she wants to buy some birds for, or for his uh, little sister, I guess. So she follows him essentially uh drives up to bodega bay from san francisco and it's a really wonderful one of the most beautiful driving scenes really of her driving up there and you get the little gag of the birds leaning back and forth uh while she's driving up the windy road but i i'm always stunned by that driving sequence
2: no yeah it's beautiful and like you know, i I think I've maybe I don't know if I've driven that exact road before, but I've driven roads like that, kind of like these northern California um, Bay Area towns. Maybe something like Half Moon Bay that I've visited are like that. It's beautiful, and the drives over there are you know really idyllic. And how that kind of matches up with like this um, gruesome horror story of you know birds pecking people's eyes out. I you know I think is a great contrast.
0: And then um, we also have uh, the great like. Another transportation set piece, essentially, after Melanie arrives and finds uh, Mitchell's house, uh, Mitch being the man that she found in the bird store. She is uh, riding a boat across the bay to get away from the house and he spots her and then drives around the bay in his car to meet her on the other end. And it's this weird suspense Where you know no one's gonna like be in trouble. They're doing this weird flirting where they're kind of antagonizing each other.
2: Yeah. I mean, but the- you
0: get all these beautiful like point of view shots uh of like going across the bay, Melanie looking at the car driving, and you get into this hypnotic rhythm that's completely broken when you get a point of view shot from Melanie and then you're expecting to go to the reverse, but you just get a quick shot of a bird ascending from the sky and just fucking nips at her head real quick and she starts <laughs> bleeding right when she's about to dock.
2: Yeah, she gets a nice a nice bonk. But um <sighs> that that scene where they're you know they're revving their engines towards each other right that's almost like a proto fast and furious style romance right kind of uh
0: flirting with the engine yeah the mating call (laughs) um so once we get back to uh to the residence of mitch we we meet the mother uh And, of course, coming right off Psycho, it's like you see this weirdo and his mom, and you're like, oh, God, yeah, Hitchcock's gonna do it again. (laughs) But I think it is presented pretty nuanced, and especially the addition of the younger sister, who strangely has pretty reactionary politics.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Mitch knows a lot of people in San Francisco. Of course, they're mostly hoods. Kathy. Well, Mom, he's the first to admit it. He spends half his day in the detention cells at the Hall of Justice. In a democracy, Kathy, everyone is entitled to a fair trial. Your brother's practice. Oh, Mom, please. I know all that democracy jazz. There's still hoods.
2: Um, no, yeah, I was thinking, you know, of course, you, you have to think about Psycho, right, with the relationship between uh, Mitch Brenner, you know, in this movie and his mother. But I was, you know, I was thinking, like, this is this is a Chad version of that character right you know this guy yeah he has a you know a record of being with woman you know but he's 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 a mama's boy at heart you know but he's he's a you know it's it's not it's not out of uh not having a choice right it's a uh, you know he's he's cell maybe i don't know <laughs> i suppose i'm old-fashioned i know if was supposed to be very warm there but well actually the newspaper said she was naked yes i know dear It's none of my business, but when you bring a girl like that... Darling? Yes? I think I can handle Melanie Daniels by myself. Well, as long as you know what you want, Mitch. I know exactly what I want.
0: We then have like the the birthday party for the little girl and that's where we get some more flirting between uh, Mitch and Melanie and they they wander off for a little bit and then it's really like the last moments, uh, the calm before the storm, if you will, uh, where, I mean, there's another turning point with the car explosion later on, but Mm -hmm. this is the first real swarm attack and it's just a swarm of birds attacking kids and just absolutely wrecking them and it's extremely funny but the moment right before it is so so perfect where they were wandering off together. They come back to the party and it's just this huge pan across this like empty grass area. And then you get Annie, the school teacher who is also uh, Mitch's ex and she's just like glaring at them. And then the camera pans a little further. And in the background you see the mom glaring at them as well. Mm -hmm. And then on the next cut, the children start getting attacked by birds.
2: Yeah. I mean that Hitchcock's like knowledge of an area, right? is really on display here, you know, kind of how characters interweave with each other in certain areas. This and like the diner slash bar scene come to mind of just kind of like these, how uh, characters intersect with each other. And, and you know, the bird attack is kind of the icing on the cake.
0: Uh, We get like a few more, uh, you know, small scale attacks. As we go, we see Melanie go to the school uh, and uh, you know she's hanging out and the birds all pile up on the monkey bars as the kids are singing and it's very creepy and then we see the mom exploring a house and finding a dead body with his eyes completely gouged out which is one of the, the most gruesome images and the probably the most gruesome image i've seen in a hitchcock movie
2: no i, I agree because uh some of hitchcock's more gruesome films like frenzy you get some you know real scuzzy imagery in here but like I think, you know, kind of like the eyes being gouged out. You know, you're seeing, you know, kids being like pecked to the ground. You know, at the birthday party, there's like a a, a motionless child just being pecked on. And like it was, a you know, like that bird, like as if that bird were a vulture, you know, picking at a dead body. And I think there is some playfulness to this Im- images too, right? He's kind of taking a bit of a, a perverse enjoyment in it. And that's when you could find that perfect balance, right, of genuinely dissettling but also kind of perverted enjoyment you've got yourself some nuanced cinema
0: no exactly Mm -hmm. it's like if you can't enjoy the shot of the small child who is on her (laughs) laying on her chest just like kicking her feet helplessly as the bird is destroying her if you can't laugh at that you're not going to like this movie but if you can laugh at that you might think that this is like the best movie ever
2: yep a twisted ass joker right mr hitchcock (laughs) but also right that that's kind of a language that got transferred over to kind of like the slasher films of the 80s right where you have these characters where you you know you want to get scared by the villain but you know these characters in a way are just set up to be killed and you kind of take enjoyment in seeing them fall and obviously the birds is a little bit more complex than maybe some of those movies but I mean, The Birds is a real deal horror film. That's you know, that's what I wanted to get across.
0: Oh yeah, for sure. Um, so the diner scene that you said. Uh, We should talk about that She's trying to tell people in the town That there's like coordinated attacks by birds And the different species are ganging up And one guy says that he was out on his boat And he got attacked by birds And there's a drunk guy saying It's the end of the world And then you have that old lady Who's like a bird crank Who's just like firing off bird facts uh, (laughs) To prove her wrong
2: (laughs) That would hardly be possible Why not Mrs. Bundy Because there are 8,650 species of birds in the world today, Mr. Carter, it is estimated that 5,750,000,000 birds live in the United States alone. The five continents of the world...
1: Kill them all, get rid of them, messy animals.
2: ...probably contain more than 100 billion birds. It's the end of the world. She used facts and logic to determine that there wasn't a bird attack.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, a v- very much felt like a uh, a corona denial uh, debate that would happen <laughs> today. You know, <laughs> it's all bullshit, bro. Dude, I heard my neighbor, na- because, like, obviously, I'm not sleeping at all recently. Uh, at like 2 a.m., I heard my neighbor on the phone yesterday, just like, "It's all bullshit, bro. It's all bullshit, bro." <laughs> like, he just kept saying that over and over about the virus. You know. Uh, yeah. <laughs>
2: Honestly, I think everyone's going to get to the point where they're like, yeah, this is fake. Like, if they don't get it, if, <laughs> if, if it just happens long enough, everyone's going to be like, there's no way this is fucking real.
0: But anyway, uh, so they're in the diner and they see uh, a man get attacked by a bird while he's filling up his tank at the gas station. And then there's a gas leak. And then there's a man who unwittingly lights a cigar. And you just get one of the most insane sequences of the car blowing up in these quick so quickly cut shots between the explosion and Melanie's face, uh, just completely still for like these half a second long shots uh, that easily could have just been two shots, but instead Hitchcock cuts back and forth like five times and the editing just brings such a heavy effect to it. And you know, Andrew Saris writing about this film when it came out, he says the only contemporary style that unites the divergent classical traditions of Murnau camera movement and Eisenstein montage. And I think that's really apt here because so much of this is the camera movement, but the editing is like probably the tool that's used most effectively for the pure horror of this film.
2: No. Yeah. in these bird attack scenes, you know, they'll develop a rhythm, you know, set by the editing kind of like that. Um, that bird room sequence i talked about before like it's a minute straight of melanie being attacked by these birds and then eventually you, you see a rhythm set in where hitchcock will cut to like both of her hands like the waving flashlight then her hand being attacked and then you know pov of her face then you get the pov of the birds it's you know and this rhythm just uh is it's good stuff and it builds suspense and you know horror
0: It's also fucking creepy and like he's longing so hard through the camera it's Mm -hmm. like uh, this is what De Palma is extracting out of Hitchcock when he makes his horny Hitchcock movies you know Mm -hmm. Uh, this scene of Melanie getting tortured for a minute straight and then there's even a way that she yells for Mitch to come help her that does not sound like a person being attacked (laughs) asking for help Mm -hmm. it sounds like someone being had sex with (laughs) and like Tippi Hedren t- has talked about how Hitchcock absolutely tortured her and there is no way Hitchcock wasn't in her ear with some nasty shit uh, to get her to give those line readings.
2: Well, you know, that, that saying, you know, the camera is, uh, you know, is a phallus, right? And you're talking about, you know, Hitchcock having this extract extraction. It makes me think of the classic, you know, phrase, elbow grease. Some directors use elbow grease and others use, you know, Genital grease. <laughs> Lube.
1: <laughs> uh, 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 uh. <laughs>
0: So after the car explodes, we get the famous shot, you know, that god's eye uh top down shot, and then the birds appear and you realize that it's actually a birds eye view shot uh quite literally. And then the attack with the car fire in the background happens where Melanie is trapped in the the little phone booth and Hitchcock is just alternating between all these different crazy angles. Uh some of them in like extreme close up with uh you know the birds in the background crashing into shit uh and then after that we go back to the house and it's again the four characters uh you know this new strange anti-family of uh you know mitchell and melanie and mitch's mom and younger sister so now it's kind of like the not the beginning but the beginning of melanie's stay in bodega bay again and it's kind of Hitchcock exploring these spaces again post-traumatic, you know? Uh, And it it was really remarkable the way he approached, like, the mise-en-scene the first time all four of those characters are in the house. And then the second time, it, like, is so much more bare and slow and isolated feeling. Uh, And the way he moves around the actors is so much more just, like, slow and cautious, kind of. It's a really great dynamic that he builds just completely different approaches within the same set just an hour later.
2: No, yeah, you know, it almost, it feels kind of like a a deflation, but there's still plenty of tension, but it's, it's creating a new type of tension, which, you know, makes you feel more tense. You don't want to feel new feelings, you know, you just want to get out of there.
0: Yeah, I may have been a little bored the first time I watched it by like the last 30 minutes, but now I really get it a lot more. And it's like that post-apocalyptic terror rather than the terror of it happening, you know. And uh, of course you get that ending where they have to walk through uh, just the birds all just waiting for them outside to get to the car. Obviously parodied uh, greatly in The Simpsons uh, Mm -hmm. Escape from the Ayn Rand School for Toddlers. Uh, What episode is that in? Oh, uh, let
2: me
1: pull up my episode guide. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I forget because Fuck. I. Fuck,
1: now uh, that's this is the most shameful moment I've had on the podcast, not knowing this.
0: The yeah, it's also like a great escape homage as she you know gets her way out of the daycare uh, oh. or tries to at first, uh, and then. When Homer and Marge come back to pick her up, they're stepping over all the kids like the birds. Uh, it
1: might be the streetcar named Desire episode.
0: I think it is. That is, it's a streetcar named Marge. Yeah,
1: you right um,
0: That and that wraps up Simpsons Corner for this week. <laughs>
2: Does anyone notice that Homer's mouth kind of looks like a pussy? <laughs>
0: <laughs> you can find us at Reddit.com dot slash <laughs> r slash um. So then we get that ending where they all drive away in the car and it's kind of ambiguous and the the color palette has pretty much faded to black and white and it's just one of the most ominous, ambiguous, depressing kind mm-hmm. of endings ever and uh, it's a masterpiece. I, I don't really know what to say. It's like there's so many ways to approach Hitchcock, whether it's, you know, desire, suspense, reality, just pure formal analysis and it just like it passes with flying colors, not just passes, but uh, greatly succeeds. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, this is a this is an easy five bullet flick for me.
2: Wow, nice. This is I'm gonna go four and a half bullets. You know, maybe a tad bit conservative, but I I really did enjoy this film. And yeah, you're listing all the things you get out of a Hitchcock movie: the formal enjoyment, the spot, susp- the suspense. You know, maybe some erotic qualities or something like that. But honestly, I was just kind of baffled watching this. You know, kind of there was this kind of baffled me more than any other uh, Hitchcock film. And kind of a kind of a side note, but if anyone's seen the movie The Mist or whatever, it's like there's I feel like The Mist pulls way too much, too many plot points from this movie. So um, zero Damn. bullets for The Mist. Four and a half <laughs> for uh, the birds. What about you, JT? Two.
1: Um, I'm also gonna give this uh, four and a half bullets. I enjoyed this a lot more than when I first saw it. Um, to speak to what we we're talking about earlier with like the editing of the movie being really effective is in an early like really tense moment where um, Melanie is staying with the school teacher. Um, there's that like phone call that uh, uh, Melanie has with Mitch and just the way it's like cut between like seeing Melanie on the phone and then like what would be like kind of kind of an unnecessary reaction for Hayworth uh, miss Hayworth just to see like the contempt on her face while uh, her <laughs> like ex is being flirted with like right in the same room with her it creates like such an uncomfortable quality even in the scenes that aren't like outright horror and watching this leading into sully i it made me very very suspicious of birds because it's like this, i don't <laughs> know some of these attacks they're so they're pretty deliberate and it makes you wonder if what <laughs> happened there uh, uh to sully solenberger wasn't wasn't planned by 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 a pissed off group of birds but uh i was gonna say well they figured this
2: out right because it's like the birds are so deliberate right it's like how could they plan this with their fucking small ass bird brains but then people (laughs) uncovered the conspiracy they're all cia birds they're all robots (laughs) it's it's all fucking (laughs) sham and hitchcock was in on it
0: uh we'll be right back to talk about solid Before we get into our second feature of the week, uh, you guys see anything noteworthy this week?
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, why not? Why not? Hey, why not watch a couple movies, right? I, I've i watched... Uh, I've delved into the filmographies of David Mamet and Alan Rudolph this week out of just, you know... I'd seen a Rudolph movie before, but um, this week has really opened my eyes, and he's, you know, he's someone I... Can see, you know, digging into for a long while. And uh, I enjoyed both of the Mammoth films too. But I want to talk about Go Go Tales, directed by Abel Ferrara, which became an instant classic for me. We have Willem Dafoe as a, a manager of a strip club, an owner of a strip club, you know, that's swarming with uh, antiques, old characters as uh, customers, old characters and, uh, um, you know, foreign tourists. And uh basically Defoe has an addiction to the lottery and he's fought all these lottery tickets and if he doesn't win the the strip club is gonna be bought by his brother, played by Matthew Modine. And I mean this this movie has it all. Like it, it's you know, it has a lot of humor, you know, it has some erotic dance scenes, you know, it's got it's got a dog in the strip club, you know. Um and I was just, you know, impressed by it's—it's its just kind of playful and like kind of down for anything nature, and uh, I mean, just great work all around. Bob Hoskins plays uh, Defoe's heavy, which is you know Defoe and Hoskins' ultimate bro team combo, and I don't know. I mean, it's there's there's just something about this movie that just you know made me happy, and it you know reminded me of. Two uh contemporary films maybe an obvious parallel is magic mike double xl you know as there's a scene where these strippers get to express what they're really interested in and in kind of like this talent show that defoe holds but um maybe more of an obvious parallel is that like this movie's basically uncut gems so safties oh, yeah. you're on fucking watch you've been ex- <laughs> you've been ex- you've been exposed i saw gogo tales it's sick. Uncut Gems is pretty sick too, but you're on fucking watch, pal.
0: Go go Tells is fucking sick. Oh my god. I need a good version of that though, because there's only that like hyper compressed shitty ass DVD version of it. Uh get, get me a good fucking blu ray <laughs> <Hey>, wheres
2: Where's <laughs> a b where's a 4K over here? Yeah. <laughs> and and one other thing I wanted to say. Um, this, you know, Farrar is kind of doing the mixed media thing. He did in new Rose hotel, maybe to a lesser extent here, but he'll cut between, you know, regular movie style shots and then security camera shots. And, uh, you know, I get off on the mixed media. It's effective, but also it's like, it reminds me of like watching bar rescue and like, kind of like the scenes, (laughs) the scenes where like they would have like the red con security footage before John Taffer would storm in. uh, Defoe even kind of mentions offhand to the strip club chef about uh, a reality show that he's trying to start. So this movie is definitely prophetic in that way. But also there was reality TV probably around that time that did that, but... You know, what? I'm gonna give Ferrara credit for bar rescue.
0: Dude, honestly, when I watched that movie, I like I s- kind of saw myself in the guy who works in the kitchen of the strip club. Like, I could see myself uh, just like prepping mini corn dogs uh, for strip club audiences in ten years if things don't quite go right. But you know, it's still a job. You know, can't can uh, can't complain about good old labor.
2: Yeah, well, not, that's strip clubs are definitely out. <laughs> yeah. Strip clubs are definitely out post COVID. You're d- you're just gonna be. it's oh, yeah, true. You're gonna you're gonna be like sorting an E girls fucking tokens <laughs> from her strip show. You're gonna be. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Do you see anything, JT? Anything uh, worthwhile? Yeah, I've been
1: watching a lot of flicks. Um, one thing of note was uh, a 1995 flick. From the journals of Gene Seberg uh, by Mark Rappaport, Um, and it was a really neat, like, unconventional doc that I like had on my hard drive for a while um, for whatever reason, and uh, finally got around to. Mary Beth Hurt, isn't it? She plays uh, Gene Seberg and is narrating like her very miserable career. Um, as an actress and it's really interesting because I feel like a lot of like um, shittier like bio uh, docs um, try to like avoid um, outwardly giving like a personal perspective or like saying like this is something or trying to like disguise their perspective but by having uh, Mary Beth Hurt be portraying Seberg and like have her in like it's like her um, portrayal as Seberg contrasted with like her filmography throughout the years. Um, and just injecting like a lot of, uh, personal perspective that, um, I'm assuming that Rappaport is just, um, inventing about her, which is really fascinating and like seems true to the details of her life. Just, a, a classic example of an actress sort of being, um, shit on by directors like she described not literally of course um (laughs) uh but those with those freaks in hollywood who knows um i've I've heard some story i've heard some insider stories but yeah she talks about her rise um being in a joan of arc movie by otto preminger um and just getting the short end of the stick with him and then later on in her career Um, When she was trying to like break out and do more things, uh, she was sort of shut down by the CIA because she ran guns for the Black Panthers um, at a point, which is super cool. Um, But of course, the CIA was not a fan of it and sort of like blackballed her. And ultimately that and a lot of other frustrations throughout her life led her to suicide. Um, and it was an interesting perspective. I had really only known her from, uh, being in breathless. Um, but I think it was like a really powerful way to convey, uh, the events of her life.
2: Didn't now, didn't the CIA, uh, blackball her by, uh, planting a story that she, she cucked her husband by sleeping by with one of the black Panther
1: members that is correct that is uh one of the various <laughs> ways
2: yeah that's that's using the cuck to fire up some men that's a powerful tool I, i'm pretty sure that that's prescient i'm pretty sure cia still has that in their handbook like, <laughs> that's some caveman shit right there
0: oh my god <laughs> law and order special cuck unit
1: <laughs> uh but yeah what about you eddie
0: A couple days ago, I treated myself to a very unconventional dudes rock double feature of Angels in America, uh, Tony Kushner's AIDS epic, and That Feel When No Girlfriend, Alex (laughs) Lee Moyer's uh, incel doc. So, Angels in America... Um, long ass fucking play about uh, the time we live in now through the guise of 1980s and it's important uh, and it's not that good to be honest but it's like very you know it's dramatically compelling enough it, it makes sense that a bunch of people were able to watch this fucking six hour play you know <laughs> like it's dramatically compelling enough you got Al Pacino just giving the performance uh, not like the performance of anyone else's lifetime And a top 30 Al Pacino performance. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it's like, okay. Uh, If you want to see Al Pacino uh, be Roy Cohn and just like be gay and say slurs and talk about how he's not gay. He's a straight man who likes to fuck other men in the ass. uh, You might want to check it out. (laughs) Now, in between uh, parts one and two of Angels in America... Uh, I watched that Feel When No Girlfriend, the, the kind of digital documentary du jour from the other day. And uh, this is a film about Wojak and the men who use him to uh, <laughs> get by in this world. Um, really, it's just like a survey of a handful of like 4chan, Twitter, irony bros uh some of which are in better situations than others it's really not about incels at all the only like incel thing on here is uh the joker scare which i think is covered pretty humorously uh i I actually i think like the three minutes of joker stuff in this movie is probably the best stuff uh, Mm -hmm. other than just like in that counts as archival footage though you know the best Mm -hmm. parts of this movie are just posts that they screenshot and put in the movie And so it's like, it's not digging too deep. It's kind of a surface level digital documentary that's made to generate takes at festivals. I mean, the first thing you see when you open up the file is some lady who programs at South by Southwest saying, you know, we're so happy to have you here at South by Southwest digital via Amazon Prime. It's like, well, okay, (laughs) (laughs) I know what this is uh to quote uh dale cooper in episode whatever when he's at the arm wrestling compound i know what it is <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. so yeah that feel window no girlfriend has some funny shit in it and if you're interested in like seeing what some of those posters like can't bought are like in real life then check it out it's pretty fun you know not very good
2: i uh you know that that feel when no gf uh, reminded me of a short documentary that came out in uh, 2011 called Shy Boys IRL. And if you're looking for incel content, I haven't seen the movie Eddie was talking about, but th- this gives you the hardcore incel content. Because these guys were incels in like 2011, kind of before it was popular, right? So they're just on forums, you know, talking about how they, you know, don't have sex. And uh, this uh, female filmmaker, I, for- I forgot her name. Um, got a couple of these guys from the forum and like just put them in a hotel room and they kind of had a round table of incel dumb and so um yeah if you're there's plenty of there's plenty of incel content out there and i i think uh what you're talking about you know kind of how this is a movie to generate takes i think people love to gawk at the incel community i mean i i've i've done this myself i remember visiting like the incel subreddit when it was still open you know just for some humorous content but uh People love to gawk at these motherfuckers.
0: And it's like, who cares? Like we're all that, you know? Like (laughs) Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, it's uh these are the dogs, you know? Go show support.
1: (laughs) Go watch the movie.
0: (laughs) For some dumb like lib who's in blue check media, whatever, uh who is going to see this film and think like, what are these craven incels who only want to do violence against women thinking? And they see this film. Honestly, I think I'm kind of happy with what those people will take away from this because it's not about that at all. And those people will just be like, okay, I just watched a movie about posting online for 80 minutes. And then later on, they'll realize that all of those fears that they had were actually just about people posting online. (laughs)
2: <laughs> they yeah they don't like it when you post they hate a poster
0: they don't they don't that's like the key part of the movie really it's like it could have ended 10 minutes in where uh, someone says oh, something along the lines of you know racism misogyny whatever just whatever gets people mad online is funny and it's like, yeah, like <laughs> uh, yeah you don't really need to develop much more like you don't really need evidence for that as a thesis you don't really need uh the because like the counterpoint is kind of built into it too because it's racism it's misogyny whatever it's like the whole arguments in that 30 seconds and also there's the clip where Cantbot bot talks about the dichotomy of man as the wojack and the pepe uh, and i actually think this is a pretty funny point and well put honestly uh people gawked at this point i think it's actually quite astute because All of these e-boy incels, they do, and myself included, they do have that dichotomy within them, whether or not they identify with the characters of Pepe and Wojak. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Like the side of you that is just talking shit online and saying dumb shit that you would never back up in real life. And the side of you that is immensely depressed and like thinking terrible things all the time. And uh, it's like a a product of, you know, alienation, as some people say in this film and probably not even said enough. Uh, But it's a it's a very strange time we live in. And uh, solace is found in the memes.
2: I think the key is to fuse those two parts of yourself. Right. Is to your depressive side and your side that talks shit, but like won't say it in real life you just gotta start talking shit in real life yeah yourself into trouble be depressed that and you'll probably you'll probably get laid dude you'll probably get some um pussy just feel like this guy's out here saying wild shit you know yeah. so that's that's my that's my pua technique of the episode um, yeah
1: he's aggressive and depressed i want to sleep with him <laughs> Girls fucking love Yeah, I was going to say
0: it might just it might just result in you getting beat up, which is probably good for the depressive side, like you'll know, we'll probably enjoy that, you know. I haven't been beat up since I was like 12. I am you know, I'm kind of down I'll be, anyway. I'll, I'll beat you up. Um, <laughs> okay, for sure.
1: <laughs> it was not a it's not a crash. It was a forced water landing.
0: Sully is a 2016 film by Clint Eastwood. Uh, it's part of the kind of series of heroes of modern history if you will that Mm -hmm. he had been making with american sniper the 1517 to paris this film and of course richard jewell
2: or as i like to call it the patriot series because it's all about amer (laughs) about americans doing the right thing
0: (laughs) (laughs) this is the this is the woke version of peter berg's recent films with mark Wahlberg (laughs) about american heroism
2: (laughs) it is funny that yeah it's like Uh, just Eastwood's pivot towards humanism makes him more woke than probably, I mean, let alone action directors, probably just most directors.
0: Yeah. And I think the humanism of this film is so clear and almost like thudding you over the head with it, but in a good way, Uh, because the whole film is about the human factor. You know, (laughs) that's the the whole investigation, really. Uh, It all comes down to the human factor because Sully is a man and every man every woman every person is uh unique in their skill sets and their abilities and how they do work and how they approach life and uh conflict and uh how they approach memory and how they think about things and process information you know this is a film where tom hanks as sully sullenberger has immediate post-traumatic stress disorder uh, the day after his accident, he is seeing visions of planes crashing into buildings in New York. You see this twice once in a dream, once in a waking fantasy. And then you also see in a simulation a plane crashing into New York. Uh, you also have a man say, This is the best news any New Yorker's had in a long time, especially involving a plane. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah, I was wondering after 9-11 that probably any, like, jet showcases that some people have, like, at county fairs or, like, you know how, like, airplanes will write out messages? They probably put a killbosh on that for at least 10 years.
0: Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, But this is kind of a weird film for Clint Eastwood, even during this period. It feels like it should fit right in, right? But Sully is much less complicated than these other people he's portrayed, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, He's not it doesn't have the the Jersey Boys arc, which is similar to that of uh, like a Scorsese epic, you know, uh, where obviously characters are just making bad decisions as they go because they're young and passionate. And it doesn't have the 1517 uh, bozo touch. Uh, mm-hmm. It doesn't have Richard Jewell's undying sympathy and uh, admiration for law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't have American snipers unflinching jingoism and absolute uh brainwashing due to the industrial the military industrial complex instead it's a guy who's literally perfect at his job Uh, and he's a working class hero like we've never seen in the cinema of eastwood everyone who calls sully a hero in this movie is on duty at their job. It's the cab driver who drives them, it's Michael Rapaport as the bartender, it's the makeup artist on the TV show that he interviews on, and it's the woman who works at the hotel and offers to change his laundry. I
1: I really want to go like a little big-brained on this point because I feel like it's important that Sully uh has come out in 2016 and I feel like it sort of shows like with the, the fact that of uh, the people clearly love Sully, and then the media and bureaucracy are, um, like, against him for the most part. I mean, the media, of course, like, willing to play, like, a lot of, into, like, the myth-making and hero part of Sully. But, like, he is still critical of it. Um, and I feel like yeah. it's a little <laughs> bit, like, oh, no, the Trump stuff definitely comes to play here. Because it's, like, a hero for the common man. Um, just someone that the working class people can rally around, but the media stooges and like bureaucratic heads are kind of like, um, suspicious of. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. And 2016 is the last time the working class left and right of America agreed on anything. And it was both that Sully kicks ass and Hillary Clinton (laughs) should not be president. (laughs) Yeah. And I feel
2: like, um, you know, you're saying Eddie, that this kind of sticks out and, this late Eastwood period, but I think it does kind of share that quality of Richard Jewell where you have, you know, uh, uh, a real act of heroism kind of uh, reacted to cynically by the media. And even though the media, um, well, that's not even true because the media loves him, but Sully has fears of the media turning on him in his nightmares. He knows the, the type of, what type of tool the media is. And I guess the cynicism is more reserved for the the bureaucrats in this in this case, but um, yeah, it's it's heroism being punished.
0: Yeah, that's like one of his two fears that he exhibits in the whole film. One of them is that he doesn't do his job properly, because this is a man whose entire life is dedicated to doing his job properly. Uh, So that's why he fears crashing into buildings, and he has nightmares and waking fantasies about it. And his other fear is that the media tells everyone that he did it wrong, and that the whole world will be against him because of this. So, I've seen this film quite a few times, and I feel like I understand the structure of it, but it wasn't until this time around that I actually diagrammed it with a a drawing as I was watching this. Beautiful. Uh and it's a very interestingly structured film because in the first 15 minutes you have multiple flashbacks and dream sequences of what could possibly happen or different informative moments for Sully. Uh and then you get your first, as I'll call them, the two flight school flashbacks. Uh, and this is when you realize, oh, okay, these flashbacks are the ones that teach you who Sully is and what his number one motivation is in life. So one of them is while he's getting his makeup removed, he flashes back to the first time he was like flying a plane and it has this great like yellow haze over the lens and, and, Uh, And then the second time is when he's jogging and he sees like this military airplane and flashes back to him having an out of control landing experience and landing safely, uh, just showing that he's the right fucking guy for the job. And then the flashback structure of the real uh, story, the miracle as it were happens in three chunks. One of them, 20 minutes into the film you get, uh, while he's on the phone with his wife, you cut away to uh, from leaving the airport while he's you know asking about the tuna basil sandwich all the way to them landing on the water. And then 10 minutes later you go back and you get another perspective. You see the first responders and you see them, uh, see the plane start to go down and then you go into Sully's perspective and you follow him uh, from the evacuations all the way to the hospital. And this is like a 30 minute flashback that happens while he's at Michael Rapaport's bar. Uh, and then after 10 minutes of watching computer simulations, you get the definitive take from the bird strike until the landing fully from Tom Hanks's perspective. So this weird approach to memory Uh, As Mike Thorne said in his review, he said, uh, no moment exists in isolation. Memories fold in. And when I read that the first time, and I love Mike, he's one of my favorite critics, uh, but I was like, that's a little gobbledygook that's a little like what come on uh and then i drew the structure and i looked at it and i was like oh this is a movie where his brain is like folding in on itself as he's going along uh and it's just like one of the most strange immersive and at the same time detached and like having that lazy sunday afternoon feeling of a film that i've ever seen and it's one of my favorites for that reason
2: yeah i mean the flashback sequences are striking you know, not only in, in how it plays with the structure, but in their length, right? These are long flashback scenes. These are like 20 to twenty to 30 minute flashback scenes. And it kind of disorients you in a way where you, you just go back and he's back at Michael Rappaport's bar. And you're like, oh, I forgot where he was in this moment. You know, and it's just kind of him getting lost in his memory.
1: To speak to the lazy Sunday sort of attitude of the film that you've described and present with a lot of other uh, late Eastwood stuff that I really love. Those just slow moments of like picking out um, like shit at the airport, like, whether it be a souvenir or a sandwich. Um, it, it Like it, with what, when we talked about 1517, I think we mentioned that like Eastwood clearly has the chops to do like the action. And that shows in like small sections and like scenes of like, the day of like plane crashing, and even in like the simulations as well, there's a lot of tension uh, there as to whether or not uh, they'll fail. So it's clearly present, and I think that he has this skill, and he could have very easily made like Sully more of like a traditional like sort of like plane thriller, but it I don't know shows the purposeness, purposefulness of the slow laid back qualities. Cause you get little snippets of what the thriller could have been. And it just like how it fits into this broader sort of just, I don't know, just a guy doing his job sort of narrative.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly.
2: Yeah. This is no United 93.
0: <laughs> so for those who haven't seen the film, um, when we're not flashing back, this takes place the days following Sully's heroic Uh, landing on the Hudson River uh, in his plane after both engines had given out due to bird strikes. Now, what the fuck are these birds doing, man? (laughs) They're going for us. We got to take them out. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Vegan warning. There are some
0: there's some bird mutilation in this film. (laughs) So um,
2: maybe maybe clip this and put that at the start of the review but uh just that's for... true
0: there is also the mention of a ham sandwich and a tuna sandwich the uh tuna basil or the ham and cheddar tuna basil mr sully very fresh
2: yeah yeah we got we got to make sure that we that that stays out of vegan ears but um maybe <laughs> uh the the guy at the diner during the birds right he was saying we gotta just get a gun and shoot all those goddamn birds. Probably had the best take out of anyone in that movie, and maybe even in Sully, too.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah. So, Sully is being investigated by the NTSB. Uh, He is being questioned on whether or not he did the right thing while the media celebrates him as a hero. And, of course, this can turn at any second. Uh, Part of the media circus includes David Letterman, which is really a great uh historical touch because david letterman was off the air at this point and mm-hmm. then clint got him back uh on set to like be david letterman doing late night again and he even <laughs> makes a joke where he says oh they should take this show away from me and it's like <laughs> it's an obvious wink but i kind of fucking love it and it makes me smile every time
2: yeah and letterman's like a goat too like how much this oh yeah would, of course would this suck if like he had to call it that loser jimmy fallon to do (laughs) do (laughs) any
0: other late night host it would be a bad scene with any other late night host but it's the god letterman uh he's being investigated by the ntsb and they run these computer simulations that say he could have actually just made it back to the airport he didn't have to land in the hudson uh and then it all comes down to the the big grand hearing uh where the facts will be put up against uh, the testimony because facts don't care about your feelings uh, as far as the bureaucrats are concerned. Uh, But Clint's more concerned with the human factor. So what we do is we watch these pilots uh, land safely from the screens of uh, flight simulators. And we watch this for 10 minutes during the third act of a film, which is such a strange narrative (laughs) choice. Uh, but I love it. And we're just watching those simulations over and over. And then Sully interjects, to talk about the human factor. And what is the human factor? The human factor is about 35 seconds worth of decision making. So they delay everyone 35 seconds and all the simulations uh, crash and Sully is victorious in his uh, dispute against the filthy bureaucrats. He tried to hold a working class man back from doing his fucking job.
2: Yeah. And I think what's, what's great about these simulations, right? It takes such an emotional moment in Sully's life that he's reflected on very heavily and has his own perspective on, you know, because he fucking landed the plane and then these simulations completely erase that from him. They erase his experience, so to speak. And it's, uh, it's, you know, kind of striking just to see it all laid out, laid out plainly as this is true when we know what's true. That's not true. That's some fucking computer Mark Zuckerberg bullshit.
0: <laughs> and to even take it a step further, it's like Sully is watching a kind of detached fake version of himself that doesn't have to make any of the actual decisions that he did Mm -hmm. and it's just like a metatextual thing of Clint Eastwood directing himself or Clint Eastwood directing avatars for himself in his extremely you know or not extremely but quite autobiographical career at points Uh, Mm -hmm. and it's something that I've kind of thought about and haven't quite had the right words to describe the last couple times I've watched this film but I'll figure it out one day Mm Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, I think I think ultimately, right? It's like Eastwood, especially this late period, right? But it's you could see traces of what he's doing here in um, the movies he's made, you know, in years past. But it's kind of an altruist's delight, right? We're seeing this director kind of work out his emotions, whether he wants to maybe even admit them or not, through his movies. You know, most obviously in the Mule, right, where he hires you know actual kin to play his kin in his movies, and he's kind of dealing with this family drama that actually happened in real life and you know just as a fan of movies it's great to see them be used as a different vehicle
0: Um, I also love that like right After uh, we get that final Flashback which is a different Perspective because everyone in the hearing Is listening along to this flashback Because they have the transcript the audio Transcription or whatever speaking of Transcriptions Sully says at one point that He's listened or read the transcriptions Of countless deceased Pilots which is just like oh my God this guy is just like (laughs) Grappling with his job Meaning death constantly Like he's so obsessed with the idea of him dying in a plane crash on his job <laughs> because his job is to avoid that and to land everyone safely <laughs> but after uh, the decision isn't made quite yet but it's pretty obvious what's going to happen Sully asks for a break and he realizes that he's won because he realizes he did his job right and he fucking turns his swag on and he's like mm, I'm so damn proud of you man <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) And uh, and then she says like uh, that you were the X factor. Of course, he's like, no, I wasn't. It was everyone. It was it's a communal effort. Everyone who was working on the airplane and all the, the people who were using it as well and of course all the first responders and so of course it's the classic I'm not the hero everyone else is and then we end on one of the great jokes in the history of comedy cinema (laughs) first
2: officer Skiles is there anything you'd like to add anything you would have done differently if you had to do it again
1: yes I would have done it in July (laughs)
0: <laughs> and the crowd goes. <laughs>
2: no, I mean Sully basically says, like, you know, fuck all the bullshit. I'm too humble. You know, I'm just, <coughs> I'm just too humble for all this, this court stuff, Your Honor. And um, I, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a classic message, right? It's not me. It's not me. It's everyone, right? But it's hey, I, I like it. I like that message.
0: And like also just to talk about Clint Eastwood's form throughout this film. I don't know. It's, it's kind of unassuming other than in the more intense scenes. But just like the way he shoots the simulations, for example. There are so many great shots of like over a character's shoulder watching a monitor. And then there's another monitor on the other side of the screen. And it's interesting how he, you know, shoots this big huge room full of p- bureaucrats uh, whether he's shooting masses of them or groups of like clusters of three or four or just sully and his co-captain or co-pilot rather um and it's just like i don't know it, it gets to the point when you're watching clint films where it's like every single decision he's making you kind of have to analyze because there might be something deeper in there that'll completely change your perspective on the scene you know mm-hmm
2: no, yeah, and there's there's discreetly stylistic moments in this movie. I mean, the opening kind of comes to mind where, you know, Sully has his PTSD dream, PTSD dream, and then we see him wake up in the darkness, and then slowly his eyes illuminate, and then, he you know, he's chilling in the shower and the fog, you know, enshrouds him. You know, it's all very uh, kind of lush stuff that, you know, Eastwood doesn't quite get too much credit for, because he's not, you know, an overtly stylistic filmmaker for the most part. But um, I mean, when the flourishes are there, they're they're much appreciated.
0: Yeah, when he's fucking steaming in the tub, like that's <laughs> like one of my favorite shots. Just, oh my God, mm-hmm. just trying to get that last bit of relaxation that he can in before what he knows will be an absolute hell of the next couple days before he can just go back to doing his job because that's what he wants. He says at one point, "I uh, I don't like not being in control and then right after that
1: this is so surreal I guess I'm
0: having a little trouble separating reality from whatever the hell this is and of course, anytime a character in a film about a real event from fucking 10 years earlier uh, talks about reality and the perception of reality, it's like, well, this could kind of be a meta textual thing. And then you think about the 1517 to Paris, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And you're in a whole mind spiral of Clint with <laughs> auteurism again, you know? And yeah. so for that and just for the casual like this is a fucking chill movie to watch over and over because it's like 86 minutes uh and it's like a fucking worker's delight job well done uh i don't know uh clint eastwood's chef's special Uh, (laughs) he, he cooked up something he cooked up a special for us this time around and it is a little weird for a clint because it is so unambiguous and kind of uncomplicated but it is uh, just a through and through a Clint Eastwood film, and the human factor uh, is very prevalent throughout it. So, you know, I'm going to go four and a half bullets for Sully.
2: I'm going to go four bullets for Sully. Um, I mean, this movie, you know, uh, as well as it being, you know, narratively complex, it's also, you know, it does the thing where, you know, only only the essential shots, you know, nothing's being wasted, no time wasted like let's just keep everything sharp you know and, and result the movie zips along and is as hard as a brick and i fucking you know tom hanks is pretty great in this movie you know as he gets to kind of portray kind of a, a unique pain you know kind of a an emotion that you know most people don't really feel you know whatever sully's going through i, I can't say i exactly relate but um I mean, it's powerful nonetheless, and you know, even though Tom Hanks might be, you know, he might might be sipping on adrenochrome, (laughs) getting the COVID, you know, he might be up to he might be up to no good, but at least he's gifted us his art, and that's something that's worth something. Um, But more props to Eastwood than uh, Hanks. But what about you, J.T.?
1: Um, Yeah, I'm gonna give this one uh, four and a half bullets. On a rewatch, I'm bumping it up a half a bullet just because it's so special. And uh, I don't know, no, like I don't know. We've been repeating over about the human factor. There are little, like, just regular ass moments that aren't in big mainstream American films that Eastwood just nails and revels in. That make it really worthwhile. And to talk about something like else that I really appreciate about the movie is Aaron Eckhart's performance. This is truly a, yeah. like one for the boys. It's like a good male <laughs> friendship. Uh, Clint Eastwood said hell no to toxic masculinity with this one. <laughs> 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 Just boys lifting up boys. Mm-hmm.
0: And they also have, both fucking have sick mustaches. This is like a low-key dude's rock
1: <laughs> Yeah, for sure.
0: Yeah.
2: And they, they bought, because at first they're kind of icy towards each other in the cockpit before the, you know, the historic flight starts, but through their trauma, their collective trauma, they bond and, you know, become closer than most people could ever come, you know, with, within only two days. So, yeah, I mean, you got to love the friendship.
0: Um, I think that just about wraps it up for Sully. If you ever want to email us, if, if you think that Sully is just like some shitty movie by some Republican, uh, nonsense dribbler, uh, why don't you give us an email at extendedclippodcast at gmail.com. or if you think the birds uh, is actually trash and we're wrong, maybe send us a. Hitchcock emails. was an
2: abuser, dude. We gotta.
0: It's true. Hitchcock is toxic masculinity. Yeah. Um, so hey, why don't you talk about that on your own <laughs> fucking podcast?
2: <laughs> you got problems? Start your own fucking podcast. <laughs> I don't want to hear about it.
1: But do email us. Yeah, but it. then email us about starting your own <laughs> podcast.
0: We'll give you tips. <laughs> uh, JT, do you have a double feature for us for next week?
1: Um, yes, I do. And Malcolm uh, was good in alluding to it. You know, huh? um, Tom Hanks, there are a lot of things we don't know about him. <laughs> and his standing in uh, the global uh, pedophile uh cabal um where it's i don't know is he was he in epstein's black book who's who i don't know who's to say maybe i there's no way um Uh, so bill gates was and he has connections to bill gates
2: um
1: yeah so i'm gonna michael soft i'm i'm taking this week's double feature to highlight black books um our a movie is 2006 black book by paul verhoeven And uh, the B movie is Little Black Book, the 2004 romantic comedy. (laughs) Damn, that's a Black Book asset. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
0: Next week, we're going black to school. (laughs) Um, Wait, no, that's not even the right. (laughs) Next week, (laughs) we're going black to the books. Is, is, is that you? Are you the pilot, Sully? That is you, right? Yeah. Hey, it's a pleasure to meet you. That was a, that was unreal what you did the other day. That was really something. It's a a real pleasure to meet you. And you know we uh we invented a drink after you as soon as that happened. Ain't that right, Annie? Yeah, yeah, you did. In fact, I'll take one. The Sully. It's a uh, it's a shot of great Goose with a. Uh, a splash of water,
2: huh? Right? Splash of water. Hey, <laughs> um, so did you hear? All right, I just want to spitball here, but um, so the they're saying that Tom Hanks' DNA is gonna is potentially going to be in the coronavirus vaccine. I'm not making this up. This is like a like MSN reported this. Or oh
1: yeah, like. I saw that story.
2: Yeah, and right, right, in in conjunction with Bill Gates, right. Bill Gates has espoused eugenicist views, same as Epstein, and Epstein had this desire to, um, you know, somehow get his fluids into every single person in the world. Maybe Tom Hanks is getting getting Epstein in that vaccine. It's just a theory, you know. Probably not true, but, you know, it's it's. I'm closer to believing it every day. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Did you guys see that whole thing with the the whole like Rebeller uh, Twitter meltdown yesterday?
2: Yeah was it just yeah. that one guy Or was it others
0: Yeah yeah pretty much I mean the Rebler account Is fucking pathetic and for the listeners Who don't know if we're still recording I don't fucking know <laughs> um, But Rebler is like a right wing uh, Film Blog run by Sonny Bunch Who You cut
1: out for me Yeah you could out for me as well That's Rebler trying to silence us
2: damn he got silenced
1: yeah shit we need to watch what we say yeah i'm minding my p's and q's yeah actually i love tom hanks and bill gates i think they're two of the most respectable men in uh in the states
2: it's so nice of tom hanks and bill gates to fix up a vaccine for us so we can finally get this covid 19 business wrapped up with (laughs) so you know anyone criticizing needs to look at themselves and what are you doing to solve the problem that's my that's my whole take on it damn
1: yeah What he's really gone yeah i guess so oh there he is
0: damn hello well whatever it won't (laughs) be for the podcast since i cut out (laughs) (laughs)
1: yeah
2: yeah, it's it's best not to speak on the people we fucking murked and ran off Twitter like a fucking wild west bandit, you know. It's
0: kind of yeah. on the comment. Yeah, yesterday Sunny Bud said, "I honestly kind of wish I were a virgin Ed I honestly kind of wish I were a virgin Edge Lord." if only because it means then Then I'd be able to do my job without having to also ensure two kids under the age of five do not expire while I'm editing and aggregating and podcasting and writing and interviewing and social. Okay. Look, sunny bunch. I got to say this, this might come off as harsh. If you are worrying about supporting your children, maybe get a job that isn't writing about movies online.
2: Yeah. Get a fucking job. You fucking loser. That's like the dumbest (laughs) shit I've ever fucking heard. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah like i i have made more in a restaurant you know working as a busboy for a year than i would say 95 percent of film critics made last year and i'm talking about full-time film critics like you're not making money and it's not a pat i don't know anyway so um don't subscribe to Rebel or so that sunny bunch has to get a real job
2: <laughs> yeah fucking grind or die dude you know here's 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 a little something i've learned from wes watson how are you? How are your kids going to respect you if you're not setting an example? You know, they're not going to admire That's you. True. They're going to say, "That's my broke ass dad who <laughs> is writing about like, uh, fucking like I don't even know what do they write about on Rebella? like S. Craig Zoller and like they have a book coming out about Louis like, C.K. Oh, Louis C.K. You know what I mean? It's like, come on, bro. Like, why don't you why, go go become an essential worker? That's my advice to you. <laughs> <laughs>
0: sonny bunch get a job at the grocery store
2: get your fucking paper up dude
0: (laughs) if you're broke kill
2: yourself period
0: (laughs) i agree and also Rebeler, if the offer still stands for me to be a full-time critic as long as i stop watching chinese movies um, (laughs) frankly i found that quite offensive
2: (laughs) yeah yeah you can't be watching that chi-com nonsense dude Only, only Hong Kong movies only.
0: That was the best part. Is like every fucking tweet I saw yesterday that had to do with that. There was someone in the replies with a screen name like China lied,
2: (laughs) (laughs) China exposed. (laughs) Yeah, why don't let me be conservative for a second? Why don't you stop worrying about the well-being of others? Get your money up, bro. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's some real conservative criticism right there. None none of this. They need to get like cool alt right conservatives instead of these cool oh, <laughs> cool alt right <now>. alt-right conservatives. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: get like Sam Hyde riding right for arms or something.
0: You know what? Frankly, if they dumped Sonny Bunch and Bill Ryan and got like Sam Hyde uh, and like uh, I don't know who else, I find acceptable. <laughs> not that I even find Sam Hyde necessarily acceptable.
2: If any, if any of those people are going to get paid for their work you know <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay no yeah i'll say it i'd rather pay two bucks a month to sam hyde than sunny bunch and bill ryan because when it comes down to it it's like if both have bad politics at least one of them's good at what they do
2: yeah yeah and sunny bunch is trying to like discreetly mask his conservatism as like oh i'm just being sensible or something like that or like i'm just yeah, sta- exactly i'm standing up for christian americans because hollywood hates them or something it's like it's bullshit. I remember one time he I got in an argument with him on Twitter because he was like, Mother is a pro life movie. And like it may maybe it is, but I was just like, shut up. Like and like he, <laughs> And like he, he just he just started going off. He quote, quote quote tweeted me, basically I'm a fucking leftist hero. And you know, he's his yeah. kids his kids are starving because he's looking at my tweets. <laughs>